Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 230 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Well, last week's episode that featured Junior Tomlin was the last in the series of the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week and Art Trail podcasts. Now, the Kensington and Chelsea Art Trail is still on. It's on until the end of the month. So if you're in London, you want a day out to see some amazing artwork in some really beautiful locations, then go over to the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week's Instagram profile, which is KCAW London, and you'll find all the information there that you need. Last week, we said goodbye to a punk icon, which was Jamie Reid, famous for putting a safety pin through the Queen's nose or the Sex Pistols album cover, Never Mind the Bollocks, and oh so much more. If you're a long-time listener, you'll be aware that I've been trying to sort a date with Jamie to record an episode. Um, About six or seven weeks ago, I was an hour and a half away from his home up in Liverpool, and he phoned me up just to say that um, he wasn't feeling too good, and can we set a new date? But, unfortunately, I guess fate had other plans. So, whatever world you happen to have gone to, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you're already being a pain in the side to whoever's in charge of it. But anyway, back to today's episode. This episode, featuring Jessica Worrell, was recorded back in April. At that time, I recorded several in a very short period because I knew I'd be doing quite a lot of them for Kensington and Chelsea. Let me just find who I've got put aside and I'll let you know. Right, we have Jessica Worrell, which is today. Damien Priestley, good one. The Cameron Twins, Lee Wagstaff, um, Don't Walk Walk Gallery, Piers Secunda, Alison Jackson. And we've got a couple of bonus episodes coming up, which um, I'll tell you about those as and when they're released. But yes, today, Jessica Worrell. I first saw Jessica's work a couple of years ago and her visual art journey sort of started during lockdown and and she's one of those who probably hit the road running. And if you don't know her work, well actually, if you don't know her work then just listen to listen to this episode because she explains it a lot better than I do. What I will say is that she beautifully merges 17th and 18th century high society with 21st century fashion which are mainly available as A3 prints, which I should add, are all available over on her Etsy page. And they start from £55. Can't go wrong. That said, come and join me as I speak to Jessica Worrell. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Gary. How are you? Good, thank you. 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 Thank you.
How are you? You good? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, very good. So I'm always nervous when I talk about my work, but um, hopefully oh, okay. man, that, that'll go. Everyone says that goes when they <laughs> chat to me because I've got no airs and graces. That's well, that's a man after my own heart, then. <laughs> first of all, Jessica, I do have seven questions, mm-hmm. and the very first is. How would you describe what you do to someone that didn't know your work? Um, well, I guess I, um, I basically I work in terms of my artwork because I have two separate careers. Yeah. I work as a theatre designer, but I also work as a collage, collage artist. And that's mm-hmm. what, obviously what we're talking about today. So my collage work is basically looking at women's identity I guess it looks at how the kind of female form has been represented in kind of art but also in kind of fashion and how those ideals I suppose of like femininity and how, what we think of as being kind of the ideals of femininity have kind of evolved or changed or not sort of when you look at the history of art into kind of modern kind of fashion yeah. and I what I how it kind of manifests itself is I make these collage works that put kind of portraits from say sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century together with modern day kind of couture um, to kind of create this new kind of like, I guess, sort of persona or just to ask those questions, really. I'm not kind of making any kind of definitive sort of like statement about it. I'm just asking questions about the fact that when you look at those portraits of women from from before and you look at a lot of kind of fashion from today it's 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 all male generated like the majority of it is basically a male depiction and so i'm interested in how that affects as women we see ourselves and think about ourselves so i guess that's that's the kind of core of my work yeah well when you see them 16th 17th century paintings a lot of the time it will be lady anna jenkinson wife mm. of and it's, yeah. they've hardly ever got their own bit of identity, have they? I mean, a lot of them, and, and I find them, and they make me so angry, where it just goes wife of. So they're yeah. defined basically as the kind of wife of. So, and you get this when you think, and you look into it, you see that women, you know, until kind of 1880, weren't allowed to own property. Yeah. So I go into that kind of history, I guess, a kind of female sort of like emancipation, I guess, in that way that a lot of those portraits were painted as status symbols. And they were painted either commissioned by the father who had a daughter who he wanted to marry off into a wealthy family. Yeah. She was his property or they're painted Hence the, the giving husband. away. The hus- yeah, and it's the husband or they're the husband to commemorate the marriage and go, look at this beautiful wife that's now married yeah. into, who's now going to give me all these male heirs who are going to perpetuate this sort of line. And yeah. I make a link between that, I guess, and how I suppose a lot of kind of fashion nowadays you know, there were status symbols, those portraits were status symbols at the time. Mm. And so when you look at kind of fashion now, it's still, I mean, it's much, much better, but it still enforces a certain sense of how a female should be and look, and that she's she's judged in how she looks and in how attractive she is. Yeah. So it's selling us these kind of ideals. So to me, they kind of, there's, there's a conversation to be had between the two and, and these images that are created like four or 500 years, you know, apart, and I'm kind of interested in whether how I, when I redress them, whether it changes what we think about the women, whether it changes how we see them. Do yeah. we see them more as individuals or or are we still seeing them through that kind of male gaze, I guess? Yeah, that makes yeah sense. definitely. I mean, you said that you've got two different worlds or two different mm. lives within the, within the um, creative world. If we go back further, um, be- even before those worlds come about, did you have creativity in the home growing up? <laughs> I mean, I suppose in terms of, I have my own imagination, which yeah. I have, you know, very from a very, apparently, according to my mother, from a very... <laughs> um, but that sounded like you've been told that several times. Several times. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, my, my mother was creative and was definitely artistic, but she basically, she gave all that up to have children. And she's only just gone back to it when she was about 65. She started oh, nice. painting again. Yeah. But that was literally like, she was like, you know, sort of 17 when she just stopped making art. And my family are kind of working class. So, I mean, there was books and stuff and there's a kind of an awareness of kind of art and stuff, but it wasn't like, you know, I'm not from that kind of background where it, it it's sort of there. Yeah. And I grew up in a small village in kind of Yorkshire. Um, well, I moved around quite a lot actually because of family stuff. Um, but I, when I was at school, I was the only person doing A-level art at my school. Oh, wow. 
so it literally was they ran the course for me to do oh, it was you at that point that was in north yorkshire in pickering and so it's a small kind of country school and i mean there was not wasn't that many people even kind of in sixth form there's maybe like 30 of us um and i'm literally only one doing a level art and then i did a foundation so i always knew that i wanted to work in the arts but i knew i would have to leave where i was where i where i lived to do it because i couldn't do it there um so if there was a, a sort of almost aesthetic vacuum, if you like, in the, in the village that you <laughs> was living in, how did that feel for you? Did that give you a, a pressures or was it a bit of freedom that it was just your thing? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, actually. I think because I always read as well, because I was massively a big, big fan of, of sort of literature and stuff. So I kind of it was an escapism for me. Yeah. And so it was also it was another reality, I guess, that I knew that I wanted to be part of. So that kind of world of the imagination and what that was was something that I always I was really lucky. I think that I knew it from a very, very early age that I wasn't going to be like everybody else. I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but I just that I was going to do something else um, and very different to like to my brothers as well. I mean, they're creative in different ways. My younger brother's a joiner. Um, I mean, a most beautiful carpenter. So there's that sense of. Yeah, but I yeah, I always knew that I was going to leave and I was going to do something. And I was really, really lucky that my mum and my stepdad just completely supported that. Good. And were like, off you go, you go, you have to, that's what you are, that's who you are. There was never any friction about that. I mean, they always thought I was a bit of a weirdo, but they just <laughs> And I still, if I go to the pub in the village, they'll go, have you got a proper job yet? Still <laughs> that kind of thing where you go, you know, because yeah. they're all farmers and you of know, course. and they're the most beautiful people you. But can they've all got proper world. jobs. They've all got proper jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, and I kind of, I just play along with it because we all, yeah. we all, but they, but they love, you know, they love what I do, and they'll come and see stuff now. Like my family started going to the theatre once I started working in theatre, and you know, now we we kiss each other and everything, you know. Oh, there you go. All, I, I, I kind of introduced lovely kind of like behaviour into my family. <laughs> it rubs so, off on them, brilliant. Job well done. What happened after sixth form? I went to, I went to York and I did a foundation course in art and design. Nice. Um, and then I, then you basically chose what you're going to do your degree in. And I had that thing and I, and I think this, this is, this is quite key for me was I didn't feel strong enough or vocational enough or that I knew enough to go and be a fine artist yeah. I just didn't feel that I had that vocabulary or knowledge or what it was what fine art was that it was too far away from me um so I I did theatre because because it combined literature and because it combined you know kind of creativity yeah. and, yeah. and I felt that that was kind of quite a good fix for me sort of at where I was at that point um, and I love fashion and then I love, you know, kind of scenery and I mean, just all of it. I love all the kind of elements of it. But it was definitely influenced by the fact that I just didn't have a clue. Like I did. I, when I went to foundation, I realized that I knew nothing. Yeah. What I thought I knew, I knew nothing. And then when I went to when I went to Trent Polytechnic um, to do theater design, I realized I what I even the stuff that I'd learned, I still knew nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you generally I, find that, don't you? I had none of the terminology, and I, you know, and I just felt, I think at least six months before I felt that I that I could, had a grip on it. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I felt like that when I got into fine art, if you like, and I was trying yeah. to learn because because it, it's not just about the technique, as you said there, it's about it's about your circle of friends and the the people you associate with. I just didn't know how to talk to people yeah. or anything, and I met people who, you know, their mums were painters and photographers and they're architects, and you know, they had a beautiful house in Notting Hill, and I just was like, I, I mean, I've had imposter syndrome all my life, oh, of course, um, but it it was it was it was quite tricky for me, I think, to kind of find how I fitted into all of that kind of yeah. thing, sort of with it. So it was. Um, and I would just run back to the village and try and kind of ground myself in what I knew and then go, okay, I can go back again now. Back I've to your safe myself. space, yeah. yeah exactly. And, yeah. It, and it still is because it still is where my mum lives, you know. Um, and I, it is basically, it is my safe place where I go to kind of go, oh, I can exhale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, since I've been recording this podcast, I, I coined a little phrase. Well, I think I coined it. I hope I didn't read it somewhere and, you know, just taken it as my own. I've said that, those that don't have imposter syndrome are the imposters 
because everyone's everyone's got it and you get those confident people who just come in and start talking about art and yeah and you go oh that's brilliant then you speak to them a little bit more and you think oh hold on a minute they've just read a lot of books and they, they've not really got their own understanding of I know, it you and know I, I mean I still have it where I guess because um you know, in terms of, I suppose theatre is very hierarchical, you know, when I've worked in theatre, it's very hierarchical, but there's a lot of kind of academics and stuff within it. And also my partner's an artist. And so we know a lot of kind of artists and some of them are, you know, kind of quite academical. And I have that thing where if I'm, I always think I'm really intelligent, I'm intelligent. But as soon as I speak to someone who's like doing a doctorship or an, an MA or something like that, I literally go, I, I just, I have no thoughts. I yeah, can't, I exactly I'm not, I'm not coherent and it's like that's why I get nervous about this because I go how do I talk about my work but I know I'm really passionate about it and I know that I can be eloquent but I can't always make it when it needs to be yeah. do <laughs> that you think sense. that's that sort of working class thing of, of of having to sort of we think we're slightly talking up to someone yeah yeah, and and because you can't you can't blag someone who's got a doctorate in that subject, can you? You know exactly. And I, I think I also they're just going to see through me and yeah. go, "What do you think you're doing? You know, yeah. you probably should go and get a proper job." <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so how did you get into theatre from doing your degree? Basically, um, I was really lucky that um, I was offered some work from my degree show oh, um, at college. So um, that was in Nottingham. So I moved down to London. Um, so I lived in London for the first sort of maybe five or six years of my career. Mm. Um, it was kind of, it was quite tough actually, cause it was sort of, you know, early nineties. Um, and it was that thing of you, you would be doing making, you've been in costume making or prop making or stuff like that for, for other shows or assisting other designers and then trying to kind of get your own work sort of like seen and kind of like produced and stuff. So, um, and it's always been kind of freelance in that way. And so I think for the first sort of few years, I was always like really borderline, like kind of struggling um, in terms of not knowing if I was going to make it, not knowing if I was going to be able to make a career, like an absolute kind of career out of it. I mean, I was really poor for a long time, um, but I was very, very kind of um, focused. I was kind of, I, I knew it was what I wanted to do. So I just kind of gave it, you know, yeah. what I could um and again I had support of my mum and my stepdad so that was like amazing as well um they would send me little food parcels and things <laughs> no I mean they, they did have yeah, like yeah. I would have like 20 quid for like two weeks you know and yeah. I, I don't know how I'm gonna eat so they would send me sort of food and stuff down but then bit by bit it just kind of I just kind of started getting more work and be kind of getting more known and stuff and it's just kind of continued since then really um and until just sort of before lockdown, I was really lucky that I got to a point. I mean, I've been working for you know quite a few years, many years now, but I my my theatre career, I didn't I only designed stuff. I didn't have to do anything else. That was enough for me to kind of live on and stuff. Um, so the last things I sort of did before I was at the Globe, to Shakespeare's Globe for nice. a while. I did about, I've done about four or five there, like in the, the Globe and in the Wanamaker. Yeah. And it was lovely. I mean, that's a beautiful place to work because it's just such a, an amazing building and they've got an amazing setup there. And, and the, the talent of the production crew there is just amazing, like right. the skills that they have. Um, so it was really, it's really nice sort of doing that, you know, doing that. But um, and then obviously, COVID happened and lockdown and all my work was cancelled as with most people kind of you know kind of in theatre and kind of like um, events or you know kind of entertainment um, so I had work lined up for like a year and a half or something and everything kind of went um, so I started making the collages in lockdown. And was it an idea that you'd had before or did you just create it? Not really. I mean, I've been moving towards wanting to make some personal work because, again, I have a problem with like hierarchies. <laughs> and also, I, as well as the kind of mainstream work in theatre, I do a lot of kind of um, uh, devising work. So I work with a, I used to work with a collective called People Show who were kind of formed in the 60s. Um, and they basically you make work out of, you know, just whatever, yeah. really. Yeah. And it's more kind of performative sort of experimental work. And they work in a very kind of non-hierarchical way. And I sort of always have really, really enjoyed that. And it's always been really important to me sort of working that kind of way. I've been thinking more and more that I just need, you know, I turned 50 and I kind of just wanted to kind of, I was thinking about 
whether I wanted to just carry on in the way I was going or whether I wanted to do something kind of else that see what else you can you're capable of yeah. it's my theatre work all exists within somebody else's parameters whether it's the parameters of the play or the director or the budget or all those things it always exists within those parameters so I was on the internet one day you know like in lockdown and I saw this David Bowie interview where he talks about being an artist and he talks about if you feel as an artist that you're facilitating someone else's vision then you're not you're not being the artist that you could yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I just was like you know and it kind of triggered something with me and um alongside that I basically my my 15 year old niece was um well she was 14 then she was doing art homeschooling you know because obviously she was at home kind of home learning and so I would do her art lesson with her um, on, you know, we would just, we would yeah, just film yeah. time and do art and stuff. And one of them was, we just made a collage one day and it literally was these kind of like things that happened where I just went, there's something in that. Yeah. Um, and it definitely, in terms of my interest, it definitely comes out of the way that I design costume because my, my, my style is very anachronistic. I don't do like historical representation. I always put different periods and yeah, things together. Yeah. And so it, it's definitely an extension of that. And also my kind of, you know, interest in kind of class and power and status um, and female identity. So it kind of just all just came together and I just started playing. I gave myself kind of permission just to play with some yeah. ideas and lockdown gave me that space. And how long before that, the initial idea come together? Would the rough images be the first ones you done? The rough ones? Well, I did some other stuff actually that um, were a little bit more kind of like little theatre sets, which I haven't shown. Um, so I started those and that was maybe just a couple of weeks, month or something. Would that be just because you're keeping in your own safe bubble and using stuff yeah, that you already know? Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Had, you know, and I was just like, I just need to do something creative yeah. because none of us were doing anything. Yeah. So I just started playing and then it just sort of snowballed. And I work quite quickly once I kind of get into something, I get very like kind of involved in it. Yeah. So I think I have... The first sort of rough ones, maybe three months, like two, three months kind of after, because I was just making, I was just generating a lot of work. I mean, I was literally going to the printers every day and getting things printed and cutting them up and whatever. And when I kind of realised that there was something sort of happening, I applied for some funding from um, Creative Scotland because they had an open fund where it literally was for people whose whole creative kind of like uh, outlet had gone to try it's new closed, ideas. Yeah. So it was an, an open fund. So I applied for some of that. And I actually, it's really interesting because that's that's my imposter syndrome that I, I asked one of my um, friends who teaches um, at the Glasgow Art School if she would mentor me through it because I felt I wanted that sort of um, nurturing kind yeah, of, yeah. I, I, and I needed that to kind of make me feel that it was valid what I was yeah. doing. And she was brilliant because she was very like, this works, this doesn't work, what's this, this is how I read this. So it was kind of having that sort of dialogue and it literally just kind of went from that. And I'd made quite a lot through that. And then I think it was October 21 when I first did an Instagram post with one of them. Yeah. And that was a really big thing for me because before I just had them at home and then I was looking at them and I'd sort of show them to some friends and they go, well, these are, you know, these are quite good. And I'd be like, oh, you just saying that, you know, um, and uh, you're just being nice. And, and then I started to kind of think, do you know what? I think there's something here. And that's when I made the decision to start putting, to make an Instagram page for them because I knew I didn't want to put them in a gallery system because I didn't want to go from hierarchical theatre into hierarchical gallery yeah, system. Yeah. And it gave me a kind of anonymity that I could just share them and didn't have to be, I wasn't, you know, the kind of public visible thing. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I do a lot of kind of captions with them where I explain my thought processes. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge part of the work where I explain what the images are that I'm working with and why I'm interested with them and what the kind of conversation I'm trying to have. Instagram just allowed me to do that. And then it just kind of went push. It just, it just came from there really. It, it must have been around maybe Christmas 21 when I first come come across them. Yeah, it was kind of because I think it was quite low key. Style. It, it, kind of, it coincided with my stepfather dying. Um, oh, OK. So basically things went a little bit um, pear shaped then. Yeah. Um, and kind of, you know, as a family, family was still trying to kind of recover from that. Yeah. 
but in a way it also gave me an escape I could do something so I would just be making them I was back in um in Appleton then in the village um looking after my mum um so I would just make them there um so I just stopped, started making them and then posting them making them posting them making them posting them and I think um and I watched loads of YouTube videos on how to get an Instagram follow. <laughs> I had to like a lot of, you know, we have to like works and you have to engage, but I could do it there. And it gave me a focus outside of all the grief and everything. Yeah, um, yeah. And then yeah, it was kind of post-Christmas, I think, where suddenly it, it it did start kind of picking, you know, it just went a bit crazy on, on Instagram. And like Scaparelli, one of the kind of fashion houses, shared it. And Gautier, another one of the fashion houses sort of shared it. That yeah. It kind of started to get this kind of validation, which was amazing for me from some of the kind of people whose material I was I was looking at. Yeah, nice. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I've always liked works from two separate centuries, if you like, mm. come together. If you see, there might be a, um, a Shakespeare play, but done in an urban environment. Yeah, that's always appealed to me anyway, and then... When I saw your work, it did feel like it was, it didn't feel like it was from a new visual artist, if you mm. like. It did feel like it was from an artist that has been working for forever, you know, and it was what they was doing at the at the moment. Yeah, it appealed yeah, to I guess me straight away. I mean, it, I, it, I, for me, it definitely relates to my theatre work and it definitely relates to, you know, all of that kind of like... Um, experience that I have from sort of working with costume and seeing how costume affects people and also yeah. how particularly women look for cost look to costume to to somehow transform them or or make them into something that they think they need to be um and just that language of clothing and and so it it's definitely coming out of all of that it's just it's a much more kind of personal sort of body of work yeah. for me um and it's it's been I had no sense, you know, when I started doing it of, of whether it was just something I just did, you know. So I didn't have any sense that it would it would grow into what it has now. Um, and then because obviously now I, I sell prints of the work and stuff and I've and I've just had some more funding. So I've just done this big body of work called The Shaping of Beauty, which um was on um billboards, like advertising hoardings yeah, in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Dundee because I wanted it on the streets I don't want to go into a gallery and hide it away I want people to be able to see it you know see it in public and that's again that's my kind of class thing I think that I feel that art should be available for everybody mm. um, and it shouldn't be you shouldn't need to feel that you have to walk into a gallery to see it you should be able to see it for free anywhere yeah once you'd agreed to to come on I went to the start of your Instagram page oh, and, you? and you had the, the rough version there yeah. and and there was I think I don't know eight or ten images of it and they was all black which I didn't know whether you was trying to stay safe or you was just doing a project of everyone wearing black and then after that you had an, you had an explosion of color mm. with lady wearing blue the black is interesting because that actually references the original portraits so because you would always basically in those original portraits the rough, you know that sort of amazing sort of status symbol itself is nearly always worn with black. Oh, okay. Um, okay. so it basically references this. Well, what would be the modern day equivalent of what those outfits were from those original portraits? So they're kind of styled to to, to basically echo how the original portraits look. Okay, thank and you very much for explaining. Black that. fabric itself is a kind of status symbol because I reference a lot of the sumptuary laws, which I talk about. So basically, 
only certain classes were allowed to wear certain colours. You know, for the peasants, you know, that's why you're all in the drab browns and they're using, because yeah. they're using the inexpensive, you know, kind of yeah. vegetable dyes. Yeah. Yeah. The rich classes are using, you know, the ground up insects and whatever yeah. that yeah. costs, you know, they have to be imported and whatever. So their fabrics are much more kind of opulent. And there was these laws, I mean, I don't talk about Western Europe here, but, you know, from sort of 14th to, to sort of 16th century, that basically you could be fined if you dressed above your station. And I just find that like horrifying. But then you go, but what is the designer label now if it's not that? Oh, I totally agree. So that's the kind of references sort of with it. So that kind of bright red or that royal blue, you know, it literally, we're talking nobility, purple, only, only royalty. Still, you know, still today, you think of it, of those colours, like, and that's from ancient Rome, you know, to kind of now. So that history of clothing and how we use it to kind of enforce certain ideals of identity and status yeah um i'm just really fascinated by that and so the black is 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 yeah it's it, it's kind of part part and parcel of that really when you mentioned that your stepfather had passed at that time i only brought that up just then because i didn't know if it was a thing that you was dealing um, with not confident to get to put color into it or it was like a a mourning um, that I didn't know whether you really bringing the morning into it. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, no, it, if it was, it was a subconscious thing. But I think for me, it was always about looking at the original paintings yeah. um, that those roughs are from. And they're from a kind of very austere kind of era of kind of clothing. So they're mainly sort of late 15th, early uh, 16th sort of century, which almost kind of develops into the kind of Puritan look. But that black cloth was very, it's very present. When you think of like a Rembrandt portrait or something like that, it's kind of all sort of, you know, from those kind of ones, really. A lot of those Dutch kind of golden age. Consciously, I thought I was I was kind of um, referencing those because I wanted to find the modern equivalent sort of with it. Yeah. And then the, the colour stuff, that literally was because I started looking at slightly earlier portraits from the kind of early Renaissance. And then you get kind of, obviously cloth is still used or color is still used as a status symbol, but it allowed me to widen the scope of the, of the art that I was referencing in terms of depictions of women, sort of from the kind of, a lot from the kind of Italian Renaissance. Yeah, because when I first saw them on Instagram, on my phone, so you're looking at less yeah, than a postage yeah. stamp size image, I thought that you had painted over the top of a painting. Oh, I see. I can take, <laughs> I can't take, I can't take that well. <laughs> But that, that's what I thought you'd done. I thought you'd no, I'm just painting or print. And I'm just, just a magpie. I'm just a top. magpie. I just, I just get the, these bits together and stitch them together in a new way. Well, it wasn't until I saw someone wearing a lot of lace. She had, a, I think it was one of the black ones. Yeah. Uh, with a rough, she had a lace top on. Ah. Oh. And I thought, my God, that's a really good bit of painting. And I zoomed in and I was like, oh, what a fool. Fancy me thinking, <laughs> thinking that, you know, I duped myself. Well, I don't mean part of, I mean, part of the way is, is I am, I am referencing those oh, papers. definitely. So no, I'm not knocking it in any way. I would be quite prolific, wouldn't I, if I'd made that <laughs> many of painted all those roughs and stuff like that. Blimey, she's quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jessica, which piece that you've created has got the strongest emotional connection? Oh my gosh, that's, it's really hard because I think of them as a body of work. Um, so I, I kind of think of them as a whole. So it's the what the ones that I have on my wall at home is um, I have the Caravaggio with the Gautier. It's the yellow one yeah. um, because Caravaggio is one of my favorite artists. Yeah. Um, I love what Caravaggio did that he would, you know, his models for these kind of um, saints and stuff were basically people that he got off the streets yeah, and, the courtesans and whatever. And so he was sort of, you know, putting things together that shocked people. Um, so I like kind of being able to reference that kind of in yeah. that one. Um, so I really, really like that piece. But um, it's, yeah, it's really hard for me to pick them because I think of them all as a kind of continuation of the same thing. So they don't necessarily exist as individual yeah. pieces for me. Your body of work as sort of, you was learning yourself as you started. I oh presume. God, yeah, totally. So is there any specific ones that you were doing that while you was doing them it gave you an understanding of what your subconscious was trying to tell you if you like you know did, did you get any feedback from your own work to go oh this is what I'm trying to say uh maybe some of the first rough ones would because I was yeah that, that they would it was just really interesting that because I was doing some other stuff 
when I was just messing around with stuff before with kind of putting them into kind of environments, yeah. um, almost trying to make a little theatre set. So I realised that what I was doing was kind of making little, you know, kind of um, scenes or scenarios or something. And that's that was my, I think sometimes that's me just having to do more to try and kind of make it seem like it means more or something. And, and then I stripped it away and just went, it's literally just about the figure in yeah. space yeah. Um, and the clothing, obviously. And so I think maybe the first couple of rough ones that I made, I just went, oh yeah, this is it, this yeah. is it. They first had a much more kind of textured background because I was playing with scale. And then I yeah. basically simplified that down to it being really kind of dark. Yeah. I wanted them to feel like how when you stand in front of one of those paintings, you just feel like the figures looming out kind of at you. Yeah, I think when I realized that I had to do less, I didn't have yeah. to kind of overdo well, was, Even going back to your theater life, where you've taken away the background, it is like the solo figure on stage, just yeah. in the spotlight, isn't it, you know? Yeah, exactly that. And, and kind of knowing that that's enough. And I think that's something that I guess my experience has sort of told me in that way of like, don't be too precious about yeah. an idea or don't be too precious about, I don't think you have to do too much. It's sort of, sometimes it's just being confident that you can just be really, have quite a light touch with something. Yeah. Well, um, when you first come up with a concept, you, your initial thought is to try and tell the viewer everything that you're thinking at the moment. Exactly. And that's just that. inundating them with visual information when really, like you just say, scale back, scale back, scale back and let them have some room to think for themselves. Exactly. Like. I think it's so, so good because it's so important that you, you allow space for the viewer. Yeah. And that's something I learned through design because when I first started, I was just throwing stuff at it like, notice me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, look, look at my amazing concept. Yeah. Just think how brilliant my mind is. You know, and it was just it was rubbish. It just was like less is more kind yeah. of with it. Um, Definitely. So now I'm more like if I can get rid of something, I'll get rid of it. Yeah, I've, I've allowed myself, I guess, sort of to be a bit more brutal about some of those kind of choices and stuff. And I know when they don't work, I mean, it takes me quite a while to find the right face or the right outfit or the right kind of marriage between the kind of images and where you feel that, that then it becomes an entity in itself. Um, it's just, it's really lovely. And sometimes I can see a, a portrait and think, I need to find something for that, but it'll take me a while to kind of, or I just it, I just have it kind of there thinking one day I'll see an outfit that will suit that person. And it's been an amazing kind of learning curve because I've learned so much about art history, about history of women, you know, kind of how they're depicted in history yeah. of art and also thinking about kind of the history of fashion and stuff. So it, it sort of blows my mind that I can learn so much kind of while making it. And I think yeah. I just try and share some of that knowledge as I'm doing it rather than it being about what I think it's about what I what I'm trying to find out I guess yeah well when you're comparing these two pictures of society or mm. women in society from the 21st century and from the 16th or 17th even earlier sometimes you are asking the viewer to to look at that woman in her society 500 years ago and compare her to today's woman and and some of the expectations of society and of women against other women, of men onto women. Yeah, some exactly. of them are still I, I, being asked 500 years later, you know. That, actually, that's the, the biggest thing. thing for me, Gary, just that thing we go, why are we still asking these questions? Yeah. We're still asking these same questions, you know, as, as women, as, as men, you know, all of us, we're still asking these same, same questions of how do we how do we fit? Who are we, yeah. you know, kind of in kind of life, I guess, or... Are you kind of in control of, of, of yourself in terms of the decisions that you make? Are you making them, you know, yeah. or, or are they kind of in a way by osmosis being made by things that you see or things that are expected and all of those? I mean, they're yeah. kind of age old conundrums, aren't they? Sort of yeah, I, I, I was sitting on a train a couple of years, long before COVID, uh, maybe 2016 or something. And I heard uh, a girl who was possibly... 17 18 with very probably a grandmother who was i don't know late 60s or something the nan was telling the daughter about the tights in the 40s putting oh. gravy granules on your yeah. legs and putting a line up the back, and, the back. And, and the daughter was saying to the nan about um ladies makeup and lipstick and rouge and how that goes back in in the centuries and yeah and the, the granddaughter was going but why are we still doing it why are we doing this on our lips to try and make them rosy and, and our cheeks to make us look blushed? And she's saying, and she was saying to the nan that the, the women used to do it to please the male. And she was asking her nan the question, 
are women doing it to please each other now or are we still doing it for men or just because it's a societal thing and it was a great conversation between a skipped generation if you like but yeah it was fascinating and I would love to have heard more of it that is that is kind of like my work in a nutshell really. <laughs> conversation. it's just like yeah. that is it that's there's a perfect example and it's fascinating that kind of dialogue you know yeah. kind of with it brilliant right Jessica if there was you and five other artists past and present what would your ideal group show be I mean that is what a question that is does anybody actually successfully manage to answer this yeah but most say it would be different tomorrow than what it is today well it would be well that I mean I would probably have Caravaggio because I mentioned him already and then I would probably the thing is this is going to be really influenced by the work that I'm making I think because I would probably want something like a Caravaggio and I, some kind of golden age portrait maybe a, a, a Rembrandt or a Picanoi or something like that but then I'd probably want it with some Louise Borgia nice like work with that because those are the artists that I like so I would put things together that probably didn't kind of go together so Louise Borgia uh god I don't know Louise Borgia and Caravaggio I mean what more do you need <laughs> it does it does feel like that doesn't it putting the worlds together even a Vivian Westwood thrown in there possibly well, exactly and I would probably want a little bit of couture in there as yeah. well sort of something like that so it wouldn't be a kind of necessarily be an art show yeah. So you'd maybe want that and then you'd maybe want to show In the Mood for Love or something like that as a film. Yes. So you'd yeah. kind of have, and maybe have a band playing. So it's sort of <laughs> not just one art form. I like to kind of, the idea of different art forms all together. And it would be free. Perfect. <laughs> and if you wasn't an artist, what do you think you'd like to be? Mm, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger. I would have loved, I mean, I've tried to write, but it's just dreadful. What have you tried uh, to write? Yeah, I've tried to write stuff before. So uh, what would it be? Novels or poems? Um, yeah, novels. Yeah, I wanted to be a Bronte when I was younger. But, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I am, I'm always obsessed with the Brontes. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, would, I don't want to die tragically young, because obviously yeah. we would be having this conversation, because I'd be dead. Um, Is but, there any, um, any, any one particular Bronte that stands out for you? Well, I love them all because they're all just so different. But I, um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I love them. not Bramwell, um, but uh, I love Anne because yeah. of her. She's so underrated that everyone always talks about Emily and, yeah. and Charlotte. I mean, Emily's like I, I, I reread Wuthering Heights maybe every sort of five or ten years, and every time I read it, it destroys me. Um, and Charlotte is just extraordinary. But Anne, when you you see the sort of progression from her first book to her second book it's amazing and she didn't have she wasn't she was working you know the other two were at home and yeah. all in, in Brussels and stuff so she I just think she's really underrated because I think she's the youngest and she's treated like that she's the youngest but she's she's really strong like really strong so yeah. I really like the tenant of Wildfell Hall I think that's a very underrated book and fancy being the younger sister to those two like you know what sort of wake have you got to try and swim in you know yeah, but I think they I think they kind of worked as a triumvirate in a oh, way. Definitely, I feel definitely. like the three of them sort of together. Because yeah. um, it was Emily and Anne were the ones that were really, really close. Yeah. Um, and Charlotte was sort of friends with Branwell and then she fell out with, with him because he was sort of dissipated. Um, <laughs> you know, what with the opium and the 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 many a session in the black bull. Yeah. So um, well, there you go. But they're they're extraordinary. They're extraordinary. I love them. There might just be the romance of it as well, though, you know that. I don't know why an early death, an early violent death is romantic. <laughs> Though we're speaking in mid to late April, and this may not be out for a while, have you got anything coming up in either um, world, to be honest? I'm actually, because um, I just finished my Shaping the Beauty project, the one that was the, um, the billboard one. Yeah. So that's literally just finished. So I'm going to have a little bit of um, sort of studio time to kind of work on where I'm going next. Nice. And in the meantime, I'm actually doing a theatre play. So I'm actually back doing my day job designing the show, um, which is going to be at Pit Lochry and the Lyceum in Edinburgh. Nice. So that starts rehearsing in July um, and opens in August. So I'm literally in the midst of just designing that. It's a new piece. Um by a playwright called Peter Arnott, and it's about Scottish identity. 
oh, and wow. set just before the first Scottish referendum. So I think it's going to be really interesting. And it's a kind of Jacobian sort of family kind of um, sort of drama. But yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm literally just just designing that. I'm trying to remember how to th do theatre design. Jessica, where can people find you, be it website or social media? Um, Instagram is uh, Jessica Worrell Digital Collage. And my website is jessicawarrell.co.uk. And I also have an Etsy shop um, where I sell limited edition prints of my work. And that's JW Collage, I think, on Etsy. Excellent. But all the links are on either my Instagram or I think they're on my website. Mainly everything kind of goes through Instagram really these days. So I would just head to Instagram and you should find me. <laughs> How big are your prints? They go from, um, they're mainly A3 up to A1. So nice. it kind of varies really. So I can do, I, I do some, some A4, but, they, but it's not all the work. It's just some that I've kind of selected, yeah. but the bigger ones are the A1 ones. Um, but most, most of the time people, it's, it's the A3 or the A2. And do you have physical exhibitions of your work other than like the ones you've got on the billboards? No, not not yet. I have to think about that because I just have to think about the context of that because yeah. I sometimes would, what I would really like to do is to have one of my pieces of work next to the original painting that I've taken the portrait from. Yeah. Nice. That would be really nice, kind of if you could have that sort of sense of, of the, the presence of it. Or like if you have the female portrait of mine next to the male portrait, you know, like yeah, a lot of those yeah. portraits, I use a marriage portrait, so they're in a pair. So the man's allowed to look out at the viewer, the woman has to look dutifully to the husband. Yeah. So I, it's like, yeah. you know, all of that. So I'm kind of interested in that, but I think that might be, I need to get some more connections <laughs> before that will happen. <laughs> And would the, the bottom half of the male be brought into the 21st no, century? No, no, man stays in the past. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I just, I feel like I, it need, it's very much about the female to me. Yeah. So I have to think about kind of the context of kind of showing stuff because, but I love the billboard thing that I did because the scale of it is really good for me. I love seeing the work kind of on that scale. Um, and I, and I, I do like it being out in public in that yeah. way. So in terms of putting them in an exhibition, I just have to kind of work out how I would make that work for me. Well, the beautiful thing about your work is the questions can be asked by several different groups or types mm. of people. So yeah. it can be looking, like you said, at, at women in society, women looking at women, the male-female balance. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes can... I think it'd be nice to kind of, you know, I to like commission an essay to go with it and stuff like that. So you're kind of looking at it kind of you know, in different contexts and things. Yeah. So I don't, I don't ever want it to be a definitive thing because I think the context that it's shown in changes how you see the work, but also, you know, kind of what the work is kind of provoking, I guess, as well. So it's sort of, it's not that I'm not open to it being kind of shown in the gallery. It's just, it would have to be a very particular kind of space yeah. where you would feel that it's it's not being shown as a commodity. It's being shown as something that's a, a provocation, I guess. Your, your work is almost the, the visual essay on its own, isn't it? You know, you're, you're asking the questions and the viewer is... Um... I hope so. I hope it's a conversation that the viewer yeah. can have kind of with the images. I mean, and I hope it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm failing to you know because I'm not providing any answers that somehow that's kind of but but I think it's all there it's just open to interpretation yeah. with it um yeah. which in a way that's how we all look at art we yeah. all kind of, we look at it in a personal kind of way and it, and how we look at it is affected by what we know and, and what we don't know or how open we are or how we think or whether we look at it to validate what what we want to what we think we want to think about something or whether we're open to it provoking something new yeah so it's it's all different really isn't it superb right well i look forward to to what's coming next jessica thank you i i when i know, <laughs> let you know. <laughs> you'll let us all know i'll let you know so yeah i yeah i mean it's it's nice actually because i just want to just see what else happens sort of with it yeah so, it's nice I to be... I literally have no idea what that is going to be yeah i like i like the idea that conceptually with any artist they sort they feel like they're pushing a car up to the top of a hill at some point they get to the top and then it's got to the point now where you've sort of gone yeah. the other side and it's it's got a little bit of a will of its own. You're in control to an extent, but you're not entirely sure where it's going. That's exactly it. And it's just the, the, 
I think with anything good like that, the work starts to say what it needs to yeah. say sort of for you or to you. And you kind of go, okay, so where do I need to take this? And and so, yeah, you're sort of in control, but sort of not. Yeah. Um, but it's just allowing yourself that space to kind of feel a bit frightened. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, maybe I won't have another idea. But no, <laughs> I've heard that just, so yeah. many times. Yeah, I think we all do it, but that it's really good just to kind of go, okay, it's good to just feel frightened. Yeah. Um, perfect way to end jessica thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure an absolute pleasure so um yes thank you so much for making me feel so at ease and so at home it's been a well i hope you enjoyed that episode of the ministry of arts podcast it's a podcast that's produced with the help of the listener and if you like what you've heard and you think you might be able to give a little support there's two ways in which you can do it If you go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll find a Linktree drop-down box. And in that box, you'll find two links. One is called Buy Us A Coffee, and it's pretty much that. You can make a one-off payment the price of a cup of coffee. Or, if you're able and want to do it more long-term, you can become a Ministry of Arts Patreon, where you can sign up to support us on a monthly basis. And 100% of your support goes back into the podcast. And if you're not able to do that, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. But we would urge you to follow us on your socials and show us a bit of love that way. Either way, thanks for listening and see you next time. Ta-da. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.